Well, Pastor Jim is our lead pastor, and he teaches most of the time, but he's on vacation. And so we get the privilege today of hearing from Matt Sidley. If you've been around here any amount of time, you've probably heard Matt speak. Uh, He's a a really good teacher, and he and his wife have been a part of LifePoint for a long time. I don't know how long. But anyway, uh, join me in welcoming Matt Sidley. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we've been here. A long time. I think it's been eight years, nine years. My wife that would know these numbers and things, there's nowhere that I can see her. But yeah, we've been here for a while. So Jim is in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, California, enjoying himself. Uh, I've seen pictures on Facebook, and it's Tahoe is beautiful. It's gorgeous. I've only ever been there twice. I was on uh, uh, the church staff at a church in California, and we did our church staff retreat at Lake Tahoe, and my memories of Tahoe are a little bit blurry because the first time I went, I, I had made a bet with my wife. She wasn't my wife yet. And I lost that bet, and I had to, the, the loser had to jump in the lake. And, but this was not during the summer. This is in the wintertime. And so then I had to submerge myself in the lake, and I got hypothermia. Like I was sick for the rest of the weekend uh, because I lost the bet. But, you know, silly me, silly me. But yes, Tahoe, Tahoe is fun. But so Jim's gone. Steve Willing was here last week from the district, uh, filling in because uh, Jim was gone and I was gone as well. And, and uh, so Steve, he didn't talk about Romans. He brought a separate message. So today, Jim was like, Matt, we want to try to keep on schedule. So we're going to do a double helping of Romans <laughs> today. So we're going to, we have a lot to cover today and a lot to look at. But it's all, it's all related. Like, there's a lot of it where you go, man, I feel like we're going back when what he, Paul's written already, you know, because he wrote this letter to not be read, like, in pieces, right? Like, who reads a letter in pieces? You know, it's like, you open your mail, you don't read, oh, this is a bill. You don't you read on to find out how much you have to pay, right? You know, it's like you're going to read the letter in its entirety. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit, but we have, we have a big chunk to read today. So I'm going to ask you, if you're willing and able, if you want to stand and read God's Word with me together, let's read it aloud. And I promise there's no weird names and there's no weird cities that we're going to stumble over. And the only word that I have trouble with is covetousness. And I think that's because I have trouble with coveting as well. But here we go. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. So Paul addresses a very plausible question, a very plausible concern that comes up as, you've been, as we've been reading through Romans, as we've been looking through Romans. And he starts off with it there in verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Earlier here in Romans, Paul is talking about how we, we are dead to sin, right? We are dead to sin and that we are alive in Christ. That we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. And there's this kind of building where even if we back up in the chapter in verse 5, it talks about, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the law plays this part in the, the arousal, as, as it's talking about, of sin. So if it plays this part, and Paul talks about we've been released from the law, it begs the question, is, is the law sinful? Is the law sinful? And this is the question that he's, that he's addressing. And, of course, his response comes right after his question, by no means. And he's going to go on to kind of point out his, his points. He says, by no means. He goes, the law makes us aware of sin. It, it makes us aware of sin. Here, he uses the word <laughs> to know. For the, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, the, the, word, the use of this word know here isn't like an intellectual knowing. This is like the experiential knowing. If sin hadn't utilized the law, he would not have known sin in an intimate way like he does. And in verse 8 it says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So sin, seizing an opportunity, and this is, this is like a military term. Sin has identified a way to attack people. And not just attack people in a way that's like, mm, this is a little minor attack. This is a full-fledged frontal assault that is hidden in the law. We're going to utilize the law. We're going to go in through the law where we can cause the maximum damage. Maximum damage. So God says, do not covet. 
Sin says, I can work with that. I can work with that big time. If we look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, where it's kind of the last one, and it's dealing with covetousness. That word, for some reason, has a hard time rolling off my tongue. It says in verse 17, chapter 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I can tell you I have not coveted any of my neighbor's servants or donkeys or oxen. So that's almost like 60%. I'm horrible at math, right? But that the part at the end, or anything of your neighbor's, anything kind of covers everything, right? Sin says, I can work with that. I can present lots of opportunities for you to covet things. I can present lots of opportunities for you to covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house. Thank you, Zillow. Your neighbor's car, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's good looks, your neighbor's wealth, your neighbor's power, your neighbor's children that listen to what they say that are well-behaved. You can... Sin's going to run with all of it. You can covet. You can covet it all. So it's seeking this opportunity, and it talks about how, at first, when you go back to, to Romans, when it says that sin, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. This is more describing that sin is lying in wait. It was dormant. If we go back to Genesis, and right in Genesis chapter 2, God's created Adam and Eve, and he tells Adam, you know, you can eat from any fruit of the tree, but there's this one tree. Don't eat from that one tree tree of knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. And then that's when the serpent comes. After God has told Adam, you only have one thing. This always bugs me when I look back at the beginning. It's like, Adam, dude, you had one thing. Don't eat from one tree. But sin through that. Don't eat from that one tree. Did God really say that you'd surely die? We're going to attack straight through what God says. So before the law is even given, as, as Paul is talking about, sin is lying in wait and is dead. And once the law comes into play, once God has said this, he's going to strike at what God has said. He's going to, sin is going to pervert what God has said. And he's coming after you. He's coming after you. In 9... Verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. I read this and I go, wait a minute, what is Paul talking about his life apart from the law? You know, this is, this is Paul, this is Saul of Tarsus, this is the Pharisee of Pharisees that grew up in the rabbinic tradition from when he was young. When would he ever live a part of his life apart from the law? The picture that he's painting is that there was once point there was life, and then as soon as the commandments came, Sin came alive, and it struck so quickly, I'm dead. Just like that. There's this fast-acting force in sin that is brutal, that is ruthless, and that is coming. And then it says in verse 10 that the very commandment, the promised uh, promised life, proved to be death for me. Here, God's, God's law is being given to me. You know, his, like, instruction for life and for holy living and all this wonderful things that's being given to us has proved for me to be death. It's proved to be death because sin has struck through it. It says, for sin, verse 11 again, sin 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Here we have sin seizing its opportunity again. It's seen the opportunity, and it strikes. Just like back in verse 5 where it talked about that through our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. It's been aroused. It's come through, and it strikes. And it just like that, it's deceived me, and just what, as quickly as I am deceived, I am dead, Paul writes. I'm dead. It's killed me quickly. It says there in verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because even now you go, man, it seems like the law plays this part. And Paul says, no, by no means is the law sinful. Sin is the culprit. Sin is to blame. The law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's been set apart by God. It is righteous. It is in right standing. As we've seen, the law does not have the ability to produce righteousness in us. If anything, it just condemns us. Sin strikes through it. And it's good. God, is, God has made the law. It's good. You go back to the creation story, just with, you know, and, and God created all these things, and it was good, and it was good. God makes good things. God doesn't make sinful things for the law. He's made what is good. And here in my sinful acts, it brings it all the more to light that God is good. It says in verse 13, Did that which is good then, following up his first question with another question, did that which is good then, God's law that is good, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. No, it was sin. It was sin. That it might be shown to be sin. The law shows us what is sinful. We find out very quickly what is sinful. When you're driving on the road and you're speeding, you don't know you're speeding. Once you see the speed limit sign, you know that you're now speeding. Right? We've been shown to be sinful. And it says, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here, Paul is describing sin as sinful beyond measure. Here as the law, now sin operating and attacking and striking, it's made its, its foothold, its beachfront, where it's waging war against us through the commandments. And this, is, and this brutal attack is sin, sin is, as it works through the commandment, is becoming sinful beyond measure. And there's this kind of this feeling that the sin is building up and it's welling and it's welling. And it's this overpowering force that's going after everything. And you're just like, wait a minute. But then it says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is the first part in the passage where I come to it where I go, wait a minute. Um, who is we? Because when you do some study on this passage and people talk about, their, you know, Romans chapter 7, and they go, is, is this Paul talking about life as a Christian? Because he talked about, you know, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. So is this struggle that Paul's describing, is this his pre-kind of Christian experience struggle that we don't deal with anymore? Is, this, is he being kind of metaphorical, talking about Israel as a whole? Is it just he's using it kind of his own, like a life example that doesn't really apply to him personally, but as a teaching tool for everybody else? What is he doing? But here he says we. 
For we know that the law is spiritual. Who is the we? I don't know, maybe Timothy or someone's there helping him write his letter. I don't know. But if we go back to who the letter was addressed to, in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, it says, including you, he does his big, long greeting, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This letter is written to the Christians in Rome. It's written to the Christians in Rome. He says, we know, so we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul referring to himself, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. There's this, this picture of that my life just falls under the category of sin. I'm under this, this bondage and this slavery to sin. And that's where, as you're reading it, you go, wait a minute, like the other things, Paul, you were writing about in the earlier chapters about not being a slave to sin, I feel like there's this, this kind of contradictory in terms that's happening here. That we're no longer supposed to be slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. But this, there's this overwhelming picture that Paul is enslaved to sin. It says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. When I read this, I, for I do not do, or excuse me, for I do not understand my own actions. I ask myself at first, I go, how old is Paul? <laughs> this sounds like my children. You know, like, I don't understand why. Why did you hit your brother? I don't know. I, I just did it. You know, I just acted. Right? And like, you know, pa- Paul's not a, he's not a kid. This is Paul. This is Paul we're talking about. He's an adult who's gone on all these missionary journeys. Who's in the process of writing all these letters that we now have as the new as the New Testament in our Bibles? It's helped plant numerous churches. And here this is what he's writing about. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I strangely feel like I can relate to that. Because now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In my sinfulness and the wickedness that I do, it just gives testament to how good the law is and how I'm not. And then we come to the, his kind of long verbose part here. He says, so now it is no longer I who do it, in verse 17, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I don't know how many of you guys like uh, movies. I grew up with movies. In my house, the Academy Awards was, like, bigger than the Super Bowl. We like movies. And, uh, but, like, with the Marvel DC comic universe, there was one that came out a while ago. And I, so I feel like this is one of the characters called Venom. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with this, but there's this, this, this force that, that, like, takes over this character, right? This symbiotic whatever came from space. I don't even know all the backstory, okay? But it, like, takes over him, and it's just like now there's this war that's going on between this uncontrollable force that's inside of him and the main character. I feel like that it's kind of a similar battle that Paul's describing here, that there's, there's what, I, there's what I, I want to do, but it's not what I'm doing, 
For I do not do the good I want, but evil. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does anybody else relate to this? <laughs> Does anybody else feel like you're in this boat that it's like, there's, there's the good things that I want to do, but I just don't do it? I could stand up here and give you a, like a laundry list confession, <laughs> you know, of all the things that I go, you know, I, I probably shouldn't, well, it's not that I probably shouldn't do it. I know that I shouldn't do that, but I do it anyway. And sometimes I, just, I feel powerless, like, a, you know, like I, there's nothing I can do, I can nothing do against it. I, just, I feel overwhelmed. I feel very similar to what Paul is des- describing here. And I just go, no, like, I, like what? Now, one of the things that we're going to, I want to just point out really quickly so this is a little bit of Bible teaching, teaching time when you're looking at God's Word. Because one of the things that I remember from when I was young, one of my, the, the youth pastor that I was involved in was the first person that told me the expression, when you come in God's Word, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Which next week we're going to be coming to chapter 8, which begins with therefore, which means we need to understand what is being said right here for next week to mean all the more. But another thing that always stood out to me is when you read things in Scripture, especially in New Testament writings, when you feel like you read the same thing twice, you need to stop and pause for a moment. Because when I feel like I just read the same thing twice, there's something there that I need to make sure that I don't miss. Because when we teach our children to write, you know, once they get a little bit older, my daughter just finished kindergarten and she's, you know, learning her letters and her lowercase and her uppercase. But when we start teaching our kids like, sentence structure and paragraph structure. You know, when you write a good paragraph, you know, you've got your introduction, right, your thesis statements, you're normally your first line, and then you've got your supporting texts and your sentences, and you've cited all your sources with quotation marks down, and then you kind of end with a conclusion, right? Standard paragraph. Some of you are like, that's school. I don't write paragraphs anymore. I write, I write texts. I have a limit to 160 characters on whatever social media I use. Paragraphs, right? right? That's kind of a normal paragraph structure. Now, in this day and age, and at the time was this written, there was a form that was used where they would sandwich their idea, the main point of what they're driving at, they would sandwich it between supports. So when you read something like in verse 17... It says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And then I get to 20 where I go, for I do not do what I want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I go, that was very redundant very quickly. And you go, wait a minute, let's back up and let's look and see what's in the middle. And in the middle it says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The driving force of what Paul's writing here is, I have the desire to do it. I desire to do what is right, but I do not have the power. I do not have the ability to carry it out to fruition. And I feel weak. I do not have the power. I desire to do what is right. And then here when, in verse 20, I think it's interesting too, when you look at it, it says, now I do not do what I want. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This when you first read it, your party almost goes like, Paul, this kind of feels like a cop-out. Like, it, it's, I, I didn't do it. It was sin that dwelt within me. You know, the devil made me do it. But this sin that's dwelling within Paul, that's waging war within Paul, is evidence to the rule that he's about to share with us that he's found in life. It says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He delights in it. He delights in God's law in his inner being. But whenever I desire to do what is right, I desire to do what is good, evil is lurking close behind. I'm finding that this jives with my life and things that I experience. Oftentimes when I desire to do something good, there is evil lurking and waiting right there with it. Sin is going to strike through God's law. It's going to strike through it. And here it says, too, for I delight in God's law. This is another, I think, example that Paul is talking about. This is, this is what the Christian life is for Paul. Because I don't know how many non-Christians would describe themselves as that I delight in God's law. All right? I delight in God's law in my inner being, in my core. I delight in God's law. Paul, Paul is talking about, this is for believers. This is for us. This is a struggle that believers will get to encounter. That we will get to encounter. And then he says in verse 23, but in my members, he delights, in, he delights in the law of God, but now in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, captive to the law the sin of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh. There's a war that's raging internally. There's the law of my mind, that's the law of God, that it, but there's this war that's raging in my members that's holding my mind captive, that's winning, it's taking over. <sighs> what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me? He cries out, God, help me. God, save me. These aren't cries of just new believers coming to the Lord for the first time. This is the cry of each and every believer should probably be on a daily basis, probably an hourly basis. God, God help me. God save me from this body of sin and death. Save me. Save me, Father. And then he says in 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for him paying the price for sin and death. That's in this overwhelming force within my body that is uncontrollable. Thank you that you paid the price, that you conquered that in me. Yet that I may struggle with it because of this fleshly body that I have, but the penalty, the wages that are earned for sin and death, we will not pay. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, who is my Lord. Who is my Lord, whom I serve, whom I follow, who I dedicate my life after. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Verse 25 is great. But then there's the second half of verse 25, where Paul states very matter-of-factly here at the end, So then, in conclusion, so to speak, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, 
But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And this is where, as I, as I look at this, I go, man, there's, there's two ways to approach this. And there's part of me that goes, I look at that and I go, man, our society presents like we need to be well-rounded people, right? So I look at this and I go, man, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I got to fix that. That's what needs correction here. That's the problem here is that I'm serving this law of sin. And so what Paul is talking about here throughout this whole letter is that if we spend our time as believers focused on fixing ourselves through the law of sin that's at work in our members, you will fail. You will live life in the life of sin and death and you will be defeated and you will be wrapped up and you will be in bondage and you will be enslaved to it and you're focused on this and you're fighting a battle that is not yours to have fought because you're not powerful enough to take care of it. Jesus took care of that. Our focus is on the first half when he says that I serve the law of God with my mind. What do we pursue? Here, Paul is getting ready. And this is where I go, man, chapter 7 is tough without moving into chapter 8 very quickly, which we will be into next week. Because here it talks about living. Paul is getting ready. He's building up. This is all his build-up to talking about living life by the Spirit. That we live life by the Spirit and there's this major connection to our mind. Rather than focusing on the law and the sin and death, we're going to focus on the Spirit. We're going to focus on life by the Spirit. We're in chapter 8, we're going to look at how we set our minds on things of the Spirit. And then in chapter 12, when we get there in like six months... Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're on track, I think, by the end of the year. We should be done with Romans, right? But when we get to Romans 12, it talks about that we're going to be transformed. We're going to be transformed individuals by the renewing of our mind. As we focus on life by the Spirit, we are going to be transformed. And here, if we focus on the law, and this is where I go, Paul, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He would have been, we're very quick to go into old habits, right? Old habits die hard. I heard someone say that once. I think other people say it too, right? How quickly do you go into a habit? Here's, a, here's a, someone that grew up in rabbinic tradition and Jewish tradition and lived his life zealously by the law. How easily it would have been for him to slip back into law, back into the world of sin and death. But that's not where my focus needs to be. That's where our focus needs to not be. Our focus is on life by the Spirit. And focused on life by the Spirit is what will give us victory through our Lord and Savior over the other things. I find for myself, I tell people um, that I'm a vegan. And uh, I hear snickers in the audience already. And why are people snickering? And why are people looking at me strangely? Because when I say that I'm a vegan, they look at me. And they, they think it. They don't say it out loud, but they go, Matt, you're kind <clears> of <throat> overweight. And fat. How can you be a vegan? Let me tell you how it's possible. Because me, in my sinful nature, right? Because you go, man, like vegan eating, you should be super healthy. All like the real vegans I know, they're skinny, healthy looking people, right? But me, in my sinful nature, in my love of food and gluttonous, right? I can find unhealthy vegan foods. And I find them and I want them. 
and then I have a coworker here who can testify to this, right? But, and then I'll just, I'll, you know, I'm going to slip down into vegetarian for a little bit just because vegetarian is still healthy, but every dessert known to man is vegetarian. I have not encountered a dessert yet that is uh, made out of meat. Maybe you consider bacon a dessert, right? I don't know. But most desserts are vegetarian and fit under that category. My sinful nature. And then I go, man, I need to fix this. I just need to fix this. And so I focus on things that I have to do in the law. And guess what? I'm powerless against it. I'm powerless. And the success that I have in realms of eating and physical things and all the things that I want to have success in have never come for me through my desire and my pursuit and all the things of doing it. For some reason, it seems to come when my focus is on the Lord, when we're focused on things of the Spirit. Focused on things of the Spirit. We'll find out later here in chapter 8 and verse 23. Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies, our fleshly desires and all these things and sin that it runs rampant has not caught up yet to our identity of who we are in Christ. And one day, it will. When we're made anew, and we're given new bodies that don't go tired or weary or, you know, all, you know, all those things that don't break down and they're not going to be infested with sin as we know it. Praise be to God, our Father. So next week, we're looking at life by the Spirit. I hope you guys will be here next week as we move into that some more, looking at life by the Spirit. It's my prayer that we can be a church and we can be a people that live life by the Spirit, that are focused on God, letting Him take care of the things He needs to take care of, letting Him transform us from the inside out as we focus on Him and we run as far and as fast with Him as we can. And those other things will take care of themselves. You become a Christian, your life's not going to become easier. You're still going to wrestle with sin. Paul just said that. Talk to any Christian that's been a Christian for like 10, 15 minutes. They're still struggling with sin. (laughs) You're still going to struggle with it. But one day, this body, this wretched body that I have will be replaced. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to rescue us, to save us, that from the beginning as sin has entered, as, we've, as, the, as the sin light and wait, and, and we've, just, we've rebelled since the beginning, since the beginning of time, since Adam. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and you had a plan. You had a plan in place. We thank you for sending your Son, Father, to die in our place and pay the penalty of sin and death, that we don't have to live as people that are under the law of sin and death anymore. Father, we're going to struggle. You know it. Father, as Paul talked about in Romans 5, that where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Father, we thank you that you are enough to cover all the multitude of sins. Father, I ask that you help us be people that not focus on our failures and focus on uh, these things that just beat us down and take us out of the fight. But, Father, you help us focus on the things that are of your spirit, that you're of your mind as we move forward in our communities, in our lives, in our workplaces, and everywhere that we go. Father, we thank you for this, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.